Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, uh, and also welcome to the most exciting time of the month because it is Q&A time. Uh, question and answer. For those of you who have never heard the acronym Q&A, stands for question and answer. And so what we do is we collect questions. Uh, the next one, if you didn't get your question in yet, is going to be at the end of February. I think there are 29 days in February this year. I don't know what the last Friday is. I could just check, but uh, the last Friday of February, we're going to do the next Q&A. So send in your questions now, before then, before the last day of February. Because um, what I usually do is is we'll save them, I'll put them in a file, by file, I mean the morning of. I'm just going to go through the email and find all the questions. Uh, so send it to information at apologetics.org. Any question you have regarding the faith, whether you're a believer, whether you're an atheist, whether you're uh, of another religion, whatever it is, send in any question you have in regard to Christianity. And remember that other people often have the same questions you do, even if they're not going to ask them. So um, just take the time to type the email, send it to information at apologetics.org. Um, but we have a bunch of questions for today that have been sent in. If I don't have time to get to all of them today, which I think I'm going to, but I, I like to do my best to try to give some of the reasoning and understanding be- behind my answers or responses to these questions rather than just give a quick answer and move on. So sometimes that takes time. I mean, it could take two minutes for a question or it could take 20 minutes for a question. It just depends. And of course, you don't you don't always have the opportunity to give all the information behind it, especially if like, let's say if you've ever watched, um, you know, the guys like apologists on stage who they get a line of 20 people to ask questions. It's like, well, I mean, you can't take 20 minutes per question or you're going to be there all night and everyone's going to leave. So you don't, you don't always have the opportunity to give the information and understanding behind an answer. But when you do, I think you should take that opportunity. Um, and, and, and not just for people who are professional apologists, for anyone listening, when you're having a discussion with somebody, do your best to give the information behind it. Uh, so with that being said, I'm going to try to get to all these questions now. Um, hopefully I do. But if not, then I'm going to post a part two. And I'd rather do a part one and a part two than do one two hour thing or whatever. Uh, so try to get to them. If I don't, though, I will get to them and there will be a part two next week. There are some very interesting questions, really good questions. Uh, and I actually, I didn't, I didn't do this on purpose. This isn't like a content, a content thing I did on purpose, but I think some of the best questions are last. I'm not doing that to you to make you stay, but you should stay because some of the best questions here are last. Um, and the very last one I bet is one that you've struggled with and you've had a hard time with. Uh, it has to do with why God, um, commanded quote unquote genocide on Canaan. And so, uh, we're going to be extrapolating on that a little bit because I actually have a, I think a pretty interesting view, but I also think a very biblical view that you, you possibly haven't heard before. Um, so stay for that. But before we start with the questions, make sure you hit follow uh, make sure you hit notify after you hit follow. There's probably a little thing you slide over a um, little button. So just hit, hit follow, hit notify. Uh, we're getting ready to start YouTube soon. That's just about ready to go. So I'm super pumped for that. 
Um, I'll keep you updated on on everything going on with that. And of course, as I've mentioned, we have a new segment. I'm still not going to tell you what it is yet, uh, but we have a new segment coming out very soon. It's in the works. It's almost ready to almost ready to launch, as they say. Um, so a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Really cool. A lot of new stuff I haven't necessarily done yet. So I'm always up for learning new things and doing new things, and that's exactly what's going to happen here. So uh, all that to say, don't forget to hit follow. And with that being said, let's get into the questions. Number one, um, a listener said, love the show, bro. I love you too. If you have a show, I want to listen to it. Uh, So he says, love the show. I found you while listening to Heiser's podcast and have been an avid listener ever since. I was listening to your most recent podcast and you were discussing how we need to look into things that don't make sense and etc. How at times there are unanswered questions or untied ends. You gave the example of the story of the flood in scripture and the correlation to the story in other ancient texts. That reminded me that a few weeks ago, you handwave dismissed flat earthers as a weird belief system. Uh, it is not a belief system. It is reality. And condemnation without investigation is embracing ignorance. The three simplest proofs that we do not live in the globe-space paradigm are, number one, if Earth was an open system next to the vacuum of space, gas would seek to fill the available space immediately. We have gas pressure that defies the second law of thermodynamics. High pressure to low pressure, uh, always. In reality, space does not exist. We must have containment. It is a necessary antecedent to have pressure. Uh, Two, if we lived on a globe, there must be a physical geometric horizon at specific distances based upon observer height. That physical horizon does not exist. Number three, uh, if the earth were rotating, it would rotate underneath airplanes, helicopters, hard air balloons, drones, etc. And it does not, not to mention what it would do to constellations over the years. The entire space paradigm has been extrapolated based upon presupposition, declaration, and pseudoscience. As with much of what is called science today, science has been replaced with alchemy, producing desired outcomes, see evolution, for example. The globe-space paradigm is a religion. It is not backed by tangible evidence. It exists in theoretical physics only. All I ask is that you do not simply hand-wave dismiss those whom have looked into this. I once scoffed at Flat Earth as well. Uh, If the globe is real, it would withstand scrutiny. Um, so thank you so much for your question. And also, even though we, we disagree on this particular area or the specific topic, thank you for listening anyway. It drives me crazy when somebody hears something they disagree with and then they just never listen to it again or write that person off or whatever. Um, I mean, if I were to look at like the top 25 pastors or theologians or, or, or apologists I agree with on a lot of things that I learn a lot from, chances are I could make a whole list from each of them with things that I don't uh, don't agree on. So thank you for doing that. Um, what I would say is while I, I don't hold the view that the earth is flat, um, I do think, A, that I can understand where somebody would be coming from because I'm not exactly uh, in full trust of the scientific community today. And if you're a doctor or somebody listening is a doctor or someone who's part of the, the, the physics community or the scientific community in some way, I'm not trying to write you off either. I'm not saying forget science. That would just be silly. Uh, but what I am saying is I can see why somebody wouldn't trust what they're told or what they've heard, especially when you can't go up to space and verify it uh, for yourself. But with that being said, I think that that these objections are primarily answered because the Earth has an atmosphere, uh, and I think that for the second one, 
about being able to see the uh, the curvature of the, the horizon at specific distances, I think that that is observable. And what you would have to do uh, as somebody who holds a flat earth view, you would have to demonstrate that all of the pictures from space, all of the pictures from pilots, I mean, pretty much every pilot and, and anyone who's had anything to do with going to space or launching something to space or sending cameras to space, all of them would either have to A, be lying or B, there would just be a huge conspiracy where pretty much all of their equipment and everything they use has been rigged with or without their knowledge. And I think that's one of the, the I mean, that would have to be pretty clearly demonstrated for that second point. Um, because otherwise, I think the curvature of the Earth is easily observable from uh, from high enough distances. Um, now, with that being said, I do think that ancient culture, including ancient Israel, this isn't overtly obvious in the Bible, but I think it's it's implicit and, and sometimes even direct enough that I think they did think the Earth was flat. I thought that they, uh, they thought that the or I think that they thought that the earth was circle. I think they thought it was on pillars, that there's an actual dome over it, like you're kind of suggesting here with the first point, um, and that Sheol was under it. So I actually don't think those are just metaphors. Today, we kind of take them as metaphors, but when you read into ancient culture, this is what they believed. I mean, they didn't have the instruments we have today. Um, they didn't even, I mean, they couldn't even climb a mountain. They didn't have oxygen. It's like, it, it was a whole different world. And you can go as far back as over 2,000 years ago where you have um, you have ancient philosophers and, and from that period, like the most of what you can call scientists uh, who, who are doing science. Even back over 2,000 years ago, there were people who believed that the earth was a globe or that it was round. And of course, you know, 1,500 years later or so, it, it came became pretty concrete. Um, so I would say that the burden of proof would be on the person who suggests that the earth is flat. And again, you would disagree with that because you're like, well, why would I believe the scientific community, especially after COVID and, and the special shot everyone was encouraged to take and so on and so forth? You know, why would I believe the scientific community? Well, the answer is I kind of don't, but it doesn't mean that I write off, uh, that I would write off everything. And so um, thank you for listening to the show. And even though you have a different view, and I would like to do a thing, by the way, eventually, I don't want to give away my segment, but I would like to do a thing, a deep dive thing eventually on flat earth. Um, not because I'm convinced of it, but I, I like some of the more, I guess what you could call fringe views. I, I think it's interesting. Uh, and a lot of other people think it's interesting too. So uh, with that being said, though, thank you so much for listening. And thank you for the question. I really appreciate that. Uh, the second question is... I've recently, I've recently had words put to something I've long wondered and expect uh, that many other listeners or many of your listeners may have, oh my goodness, let me start over. I've recently had words put to something I've long wondered and expect that many of your listeners may also have. Is the spirit of the age in which we currently live in the spirit of Malak slash Baal? Many signs point to it. Abortion, disregard for life, self-centeredness, sexualization of everything. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, the headlong run to materialism is another example of that spirit. Thank you for all you were doing to put words to what we are all thinking or should be thinking. Oh, well, thank you for listening. Thank you for the question. Um, as far as as far as assigning the spirit of the age to a particular uh, quote-unquote deity or something along those lines, I don't know where I would fall on that. Um, uh, what's his name? The guy who wrote, uh, Jonathan Kahn, I think his name is. He has a lot of interesting stuff on this, but I also, I don't know that much. I can't necessarily recommend him. 
uh, like as I'm approving of his work because I haven't read a ton of it. I've just seen things here and there. And it seems to me like it's a mix between good information and good research and then kind of some speculative conclusions. Um, but he, I know he focuses a lot on this area. Uh, again, I'd say that with a grain of salt, but it might be interesting to look into that. Even if you disagree with his conclusions, it's probably interesting research. Um, but I don't know as far as assigning it to a particular uh, quote-unquote deity such as Malak or Baal. Now, I would agree that when you see the direction our culture has gone in, and it's it's way more than it looks like here. I mean, when you think about something like Epstein Island and our world leaders and entertainers and so on and so forth, like frequenting there, uh, I mean, things are pretty bad. But um, yeah, as far as, as abortion, killing children, of course, I could see somebody tying to Malak, uh, the, the sexualization of culture, self-centeredness, um, It's important to recognize that in our time, let's say in America, the the history of America over the last 200 plus years or so, um, a lot of this stuff seems to have come kind of full circle and in your face fairly quickly. Of course, you had a lot of this stuff pop up in the 60s and 70s, and it seemed like it kind of simmered and, and maybe slowly but steadily went on. And then all of a sudden in the last five years or so, five or 10 years or so, but especially the last few years, you've had all this kind of just pop right back up in your face seemingly all at once. Um, but this isn't something new. Like when you read the book of First Corinthians, for example, I mean, you're going to see a lot of this stuff right there. It was just a disaster. Uh, it w- it was like Las Vegas without laws. Um, so so this it's not like most of this is anything new in this age in particular. But with that being said, holding the divine council worldview and believing that Jesus is taking power back from those um, those other divine beings, the fallen sons of God, I certainly think that there's demonic influence. I can't imagine how anybody would think otherwise. Uh, and so is it is it possible that they plan to influence people in certain directions at different periods of time well yeah of course Um, and maybe this is what they've they've tried to push for this period of time and so i definitely think there are demonic influences um, and corrupted spiritual beings influencing people Um, but as far as assigning it to a specific a specific figure um, other than like satan of course as we're told in scripture and, and in Second Corinthians 2, he's referred to as a god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. Um, we see we see labels for Satan, for, for demonic figures like this all throughout the New Testament. Um, and my question for people is like, why do you think they're told or, or labeled as having authority? I mean, it's not just for no reason. They don't have authority over nothing. They're not the prince of nothing. They will be the prince of nothing because they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire and defeated by, uh, by Christ. And, and, and in a sense, in an already not yet sense, they're already defeated by Christ. Um, but I think that we should take those verses seriously that tell us that, uh, that Satan and, and fallen or corrupted spiritual beings do have power and influence. And in fact, we're, we're told as much in Ephesians 5 that the battle we're fighting is not it's not what you think. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not just against the physical world. It's against powers and principalities. So um, I would take that very seriously. And I do take that very seriously. Uh, so again, I, I don't know if I could tie it to anything particular, but hopefully that helps because if, if sort of the spirit of what you're saying is, is there some kind of influence going on or there are there um, 
spiritual beings trying to draw people in to worship them and to worship things that are ungodly? Well, the answer, in my opinion, is yes, of course. And I think that's directly, uh, directly scriptural. So hope that helps, but thank you for sending in that question. Uh, number three, when people on the website Quora ask about the prophecies of Christ, they always get an extremely liberal response saying that countless books have been written debunking them. What exhaustive resource, either in print or electronic format, preferable, would you recommend that gives the most comprehensive response? I will buy an entire set of books the size of the Talmud if I have to, or a separate hard drive if necessary. Um, that's funny. So I, assuming, let me see here, actually, I'm kind of interested. Quora, uh, I want to look up Quora Prophecies of Christ. Uh yeah, you have all these different articles. What are the what are the Messiah prophecies that Jesus failed to dot dot dot? Did Jesus fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament? I'm gonna click one. I'm gonna click one and open it up. My computers. You guys just just have to wait for my computer to load. I could edit that out, but that's a lot of work. Um, so, how do you know? How do you know the New Testament writers didn't simply write that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies in the New Testament after reading them in the Old? Um, someone responded and said. It's loading again. Uh, the most common arguments by Christian apologists is that the early Christians would have no motive to make things up. After all, why would a persecuted group cling to its beliefs and invent fulfilled prophecies or stories of miracles to justify their persecuted religion? This argument sounds reasonable to someone who already has affinity for Christianity, but in reality, it is very naive. There are countless instances of prosecuted religious groups who have invented narratives, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and the historical evidence is that early Christians weren't persecuted nearly to the extent that it is often claimed. Uh, I can't read anymore unless I subscribe, and I'm not doing that. It, it seems like this is the kind of website that, um, almost like a Reddit kind of thing, where somebody posts something and other people on the site just come and respond. So like most things, you probably have like a, a fairly sizable group of people uh, who are just waiting for something like this so they can come and say, no, 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 forget it, Christianity is stupid. But in this case, just based on what I just read, for example, and I'll, I'll get to the source in a minute that, that you asked for, um, but based on what I just read, they're saying, well, Christians will argue that, um, you know, the early, the early church would have no reason or motive to make any of these things up, which there's truth to that, okay? Um, so they wouldn't have any reason to make any of these things up. Uh, and then they say, well, what about groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and so on and so forth? Uh, they, they, they have a bunch of false beliefs too. And what motive do they have? Well, first of all, I don't even know where to start. My, my brain's just gone in 15 directions with this. First of all, they have plenty of motive to make things up because they make a ton of money off of it and they're protected by laws and they have big buildings and they have big houses and, uh, Joseph Smith and, and Brigham Young had like a million wives. So they, they definitely have, um, they definitely have between money, between sex, between power and all these things, they had plenty of motive to make things up. Uh, as for the early church, they didn't. However, I don't think that's the best argument to make. I just wanted to point that out. I don't think the best argument is they had no motive. Um, I think that's true. I think that's kind of like a sub argument. Uh, but you could take that argument and that point that this person's trying to make and oppose. And what I would say is no. Uh, w when you look at the situation, 
you, let's say you're Orthodox Jewish or, or you're an atheist, but in this case, you're in support of the Jewish community by saying, no, 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 Christians are, they're trying to make these uh, prophecies as though they were true and they're trying to write them down as though they were fulfilled, but they really weren't. They're just making this up. Well, what you have to explain, if you're Orthodox Jewish or if you're atheist, so on and so forth, you have to explain why the Jewish community then, after Christ, went and literally changed parts of their theology so that it wouldn't be as easy to, to say that Christ fulfilled things. You get what I'm saying? You can't just you can't just go and say, well, I think they had no motive to make it up. You have to go and say, what was the Jewish motive, for example, for calling the two powers in heaven a theology that they had held for hundreds of years? What was the motive for now saying that was heresy after the coming of Christ, the second figure of Yahweh? Um, and, and as for a source, by the way, just while I'm on that, if, if you do like to read, um, it, it seems like you do because you said you'd, you'd buy a book the size of the Talmud or, or a series of books, uh, check out Alan Siegel's book, The Two Powers of Heaven. Um, and what The Two Powers of Heaven is, we've talked about it a bunch of times on the show, but if you haven't heard that, um, The Two Powers of Heaven is what it sounds like. It was a view that in the Old Testament, you have all of these passages that can't be described other than by saying there are at least two Yahweh figures. Not two different gods, okay? We're talking about, this plays into the Christian view of the Trinity. Um, but you have these passages that you you can't explain it other than to say there are two Yahweh figures explicitly mentioned. Um, let's say, for example, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, when you have the Yahweh on earth raining down fire from the Yahweh in heaven. So you have two Yahweh figures there. You have the same thing in Daniel when you have uh, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, obviously God. And then you have the Son of Man, who's given all power, all authority to an everlasting kingdom. Um, you, so you have two Yahweh figures there. You have in Psalms where, where, um, where we're told, my, my Lord said to my Lord. So you have all these different, um, and there's, there's many more than that, but you had this view in the Jewish community, the ancient Jewish community, a second, especially through the second temple period, that there were these two Yahweh figures mentioned in the Bible, and it was called the two powers of heaven. Well, after Christ came, and it became obvious that it's like, oh, he's the fulfillment of this. This is a second Yahweh figure. Well, they started to call that view heresy, the view that they held. So you have to be able to explain that. You have to turn that around and say, wait a minute, what is the motive for ancient Jews taking the theology they had for hundreds of years and now all of a sudden calling it heresy after the coming of Christ? Okay, you have to say, um, why is it that after Christ came, all of a sudden the Jewish community stopped using the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the New Testament authors read and that the Jews read during that period for the most part? You have to ask the question, why did they stop using that and then compile this new text called the Masoretic text so they could have their own Jewish text rather than this one that seemed really, really, really uh, positive toward Christianity? You have to ask those questions. Um, so, it, But as far as those sources, I would check out that book. Um, the Two Powers in Heaven by Alan Siegel, because he goes into this in great detail. And if you have a friend or a family member or somebody in mind who's Jewish, and if, if that's why you're looking into this kind of stuff, um, I would recommend it to them too if they like to read, because it was written by a Jewish person. He, Alan Siegel was not a Christian. I think he had passed away uh, years ago, but he wasn't a Christian believer. He was Jewish, and it was written even from a Jewish perspective. Um, but you can see how the concept is in favor of Christianity and of uh, and of the Trinity. So, 
So check that out if you haven't. But otherwise, I, I love watching videos and things like that on messianic prophecies. And it's it's really incredible that we now have the Dead Sea Scrolls as of 1947 and on. Uh, because you would have had to have a second layer to this question prior to that. What you would have had, um, not from the Jewish community necessarily, but from, let's say, the atheist or the agnostic community, you would have had questions and did have questions before 1947 that were like, hey, how do we know that Jesus didn't just, you know, after he came, they went and doctored up those prophecies? Because you have to keep in mind, the oldest manuscript of the Masoretic text is, I think, from around 1000 AD, roughly speaking. So that's like a thousand years after Jesus came. So somebody would make the charge that, you know, like Isaiah 53, yeah, sure, it seems really specific in, in these the, the prophecy in Isaiah 7 or Genesis 49, 10, uh, and so on and so forth. You could say, well, yeah, these seem really specific and, and like Christ came and fulfilled these, but how do we know that people didn't just modify these Old Testament books and doctor them up after Christ came? Um and so that was an argument that went on for years and years and years. And finally, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, we now have full handwritten copies or manuscripts of books such as Isaiah from before Jesus walked the earth. And they're virtually exactly what we had. Um, of course, you know the, the, the differences and discrepancies I brought up in the show with Masoretic and Dead Sea Scrolls and, and the Septuagint. But generally speaking the accuracy rate is beyond incredible. And we now know that all those prophecies were written before Christ came and then they were confirmed when Christ came. So they couldn't have been written after. Uh, but thanks, thanks for the to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you don't have that issue that you have to deal with on top of this. Um, but check out that book. I'll try to remember to link it in the description, but if I forget, then just, just look it up. It might be hard to find, but you can probably find it on Amazon. Uh, number four, Thank you for your podcasts. I look forward to listening and then seeing your future podcasts on YouTube. I was listening to your podcast on the nature of Jesus. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it is written, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Was this Jesus? Was he then in the flesh? Your thoughts appreciated. Um, so my answer to that last part is, Yes and no. Um, I believe that yes, that was Jesus. Uh, any Virtually any time you see anthrop- what's usually referred to as anthropomorphic language, um, and that's like human language uh, prescribed to God. Like So for example, if you see something like the arm of the Lord or uh, the eyes of the Lord, we know God is spirit, he's not physical, but these words are used to help us understand who God is. Well, when you see language like you know, God's walking somewhere or standing somewhere or appearing physically to somebody, that I don't think is just metaphorical language used to describe God. Um, and, and I've done this a hundred times on the show, but when you look at some of the, the key passages and concepts and, and events in the Old Testament, I think Jesus is at a lot of them. And when I say Jesus being there, remember my answer was yes and no. When I say Jesus was there, I mean that Jesus is God, he's eternal, he's the second person of the Trinity, and he always has been. He's not absent in the Old Testament. He's not the Old Testament's best kept secret. Um, I think that when we see God appear physically, generally that is Jesus, including here when he's walking in the garden of the cool of day. And I'm not sure if the episode you're referring to is the one I did on Christ being the image of the invisible God. 
Uh, but if it is, I'll link that in the description for those of you who haven't heard it. Love talking about the nature of Christ and anything Christ related. Um, but you have all these main events where you have God present physically. So for example, in Genesis 15, the word appears to Abram in a vision. Now notice key, two key words there. The word. Well, who's the word? Jesus. So John is, he's not just using some kind of fancy Greek lingo, though I do think the, the term logos that's translated into word in English has a ton of meaning to it in that regard. Um, but I also think he knows his Old Testament very well because you have the word appear to Abram. And then what does he do? The vision takes him outside. So we're not talking about just hearing something or something auditory. We're talking about Abram having a vision where he actually sees something or someone and that something or someone takes him outside. And of course, we know it's God because of the rest of the story. Um, So I think that is Jesus. It's the same thing with the young Samuel being called to be a priest. You have the, the Lord standing there calling to him. And then at the end of the chapter in 1 Samuel 3, um, we see that many more times the word appeared to Samuel. I believe it was at Mizpah. Um, so you see that same thing. You see it in Jeremiah. You see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it with the angel of the Lord, who is also Christ. We're going to do that pretty soon, a whole thing on that. I've been meaning to get to it. But um, so yeah, all that to say, I think we should start reading our Old Testament that way. Um, there are times where there are things that are just a picture of Christ. And then there are times where I do think it is Jesus, not just me, a whole list of scholars, but that it is Jesus appearing the second person of Yahweh. Um, And when I say Jesus appearing, I don't mean after he became man 2000 years ago. I think that Jesus is, is the physical representation of God. I think he is the physical Yahweh. Um, Like Paul tells us, he is the image of the invisible God, but that doesn't mean that um, he, he, was incarnated like 2000 years ago where he actually became man. I don't think at that time he had become man. He was God. He's eternal. He's always existed, but he didn't actually become man until 2000 years ago when he was born of a virgin, uh, of course, in Bethlehem. And, and that's when he enters into the world as a man, as human, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't, um, he couldn't appear physically. I mean, I don't know why anyone would think God would be limited in that way, that he can't appear physically in any way, shape, or form until he actually becomes man. So he could appear physically. He could appear as, a, as though he's a man, just like angels do, just like God does in Genesis 18 or 19. Um, but that that doesn't mean that he was truly human at that time. So 2,000 years ago, he becomes truly human. Um, but again, I'll try to link that episode down in the description. I hope that was that was helpful. So again, the answer is yes and no. Yes, it was Jesus. No, he was not yet incarnated as human. Um, Number five, thank you for sharing the discussion on original sin. You're welcome. I understand your point of view, but not sure I understand your current position. Just wanting to clarify that I believe your current stance is that we are not born with original sin, but looking at Romans 5, 12 through 14, when death entered the world through Adam because of his sin... We choose to sin as the result of it now being an option almost immediately, which is when we become sinners. Uh, Would that describe your current stance? And if not, please explain what I have left out. Thanks for your ministry. Uh, Well, thank you for your question. Um, My answer again is yes and no. Let me just kind of explain a brief summary and then I'll link that episode on original sin in the description for anybody who wants to see it. Um, 
every Christian has to have a view on original sin. And what I mean by that is the original sin is when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. So the question isn't, is there such a thing as original sin? The question is, what are the effects of original sin? Um, So what is the result of original sin? What did that original sin bring into the world and bring into humanity? And there are a few different options, and I'll tell you the one that I go with. The first option uh, is, is what's often referred to as the federal headship view, and that's the idea that when Adam and Eve sinned, all humanity after them is now guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. Okay, so th- this this is a view on original sin that you could call original sin slash original guilt, that you were guilty of Adam's sin. And we're going to get into that in a couple weeks, actually, so I won't say too much on it. But I would I don't know if it's the majority, but a lot of Christians hold the view of original guilt, both Calvinists and Roman Catholics. Uh, Greek Orthodox don't in, in that regard, but um, so you have this view of original guilt, uh, and then there's the idea that that I hold, which is Adam and Eve sin. Sin now affects everything, but I'm not guilty of their sin when I'm born. Okay, so I'm not born guilty of the sin of Adam, of Adam and Eve, like God says in Ezekiel 18. Nobody's judged for their parents' sins. So there are times we're going to be. Um, we're going to be affected by our parents' sin, but we're not going to be punished for our parents' sin. So, for example, let's say um, somebody was born into a household where their parents are, are alcoholics or drug addicts or something along those lines. Well, because of your parents' sin, you might now be more prone to those things. So you are affected by their sin. But let's say your parents um, raise you in this environment and it's difficult for you, but then you withstand and you never drink alcohol and you never do drugs or whatever. Uh, you're not going to be guilty or judged because of their sin if you didn't partake in it. And it's, I think it's the same kind of idea here. Uh, and when you go to Romans 5.12, let's just pull it up real quick because this is actually crucial. And again, I'll link that episode in the description because I, I get into this in a lot more detail. But if we go to Romans 5.12, let me just type in Romans 5 in case we need to back up at all or go forward. Hopefully not go forward. Uh, Romans 5.12. So, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, okay, so pause. We all have to agree, right? Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. That's the whole purpose of the fall. That's why it's recorded in the Bible, so that we have that information. So nobody can disagree with that. Nobody can disagree with all of the multiple, multiple passages in Scripture, like in Romans 3, um, that all have sinned, all need an advocate, all need a Savior, because all have sinned. That's not questionable. Um, So, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people, because, why? Because all sinned. That's the big original sin passage. But guess what? It doesn't say anything about original sin or original guilt. It says it says something about the original sin and how that was passed on to us in the sense that we're now affected by it. Um, but it doesn't say that we're affected by it and therefore we're, we're guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. What it says is that we all sinned because all sinned. Now, here's a big discrepancy with this passage. Do you know where the view on on original guilt, original sin came from? It came from Augustine. You can't find a shred of it in church history before Augustine, at least not in the sense of original guilt. 
And Augustine couldn't read Greek or Hebrew. What that means is that he was limited to the Latin Vulgate, which of course is written in what? Latin. Um, now, we know, because of other manuscripts we found since then, and, and a, a lot more um, detail that's able to be done on language now, we know that the Latin Vulgate is riddled with errors in a lot of ways. And this, this very passage is one of those errors. So Augustine, who only had access to the Latin Vulgate, essentially, what the Latin Vulgate translates Romans 5.12 as is not, death came to all people because all sinned. Rather, it translates it as death came to all people in whom all sinned in regard to Adam. So in other words, death came to all people because in Adam all sinned. So the origin of the original sin and original guilt view started with a mistranslation and just continued on through church history. And that's when that's why when you're searching through your Bible, you're going to see that obviously there was an original sin. You're going to see that obviously all human beings are affected by it. You're going to see that obviously... Um, Obviously, there is no human being who isn't a sinner. That is made very clear in this very same book when you go to Romans 3. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have gone their own way. All have sinned. Um, all We've all rebelled against God. But that's what we're guilty for. We are guilty for me rebelling against God. You're guilty for you rebelling against God. Though I'm affected by Adam's rebellion against God, I'm not punished for it. At least not in a... Uh, in a condemnation sense by God. And this, again, um, this is crucial because this view is based off of a mistranslation. And if you want to challenge me and send me something for my next Q&A in February, you can do that. Feel free to do that, anyone who's listening. If you're like, well, what about this verse? What about this concept? What about that? But I'm pretty confident that you're not going to find anything convincing. You can try, you can send it. Um, but this is the big original sin verse. This is like the the climax of it and everything else is just kind of a supporting verse to Romans 5.12. And when you read Romans 5.12, it's pretty disappointing when you're talking about it being the big verse for original sin or for original guilt. So um, that's my view. Hopefully that wasn't confusing, but that's essentially my view. Everyone's affected by the original sin um, in, in so many different ways, physical death, spiritual death, having our DNA corrupted, um, you know, and, and having to wait for redemption. But at the same time, we're not punished for Adam's original guilt. Uh, number six, where in the Bible does it refer to a one-world government? Um, so it's it's more derived from Scripture than it is directly from Scripture. Uh, what I mean by that is you have you have sort of a eschatological view formed, and this fits into that view, and they're they're passages in the Bible that will support it, but don't necessarily say this explicitly. Um, so for example, in Revelation 13, you have this idea that the Antichrist, um, the, the beast, the Antichrist would be given authority, would be given power over every nation and every tribe. So that plays into the idea of this one world government, though it doesn't explicitly say so. And it's the same kind of thing with the next natural question is, what about a one world currency, a cashless society or one world currency? Uh, well, it's the same kind of thing. This isn't explicitly said in scripture, but you do have um, the concept of the mark of the beast where you can only buy and sell based on this mark. So, of course, you wouldn't be using cash. Um, and so these these things are more sort of implicit in in have to be taken in a very particular way in order to arrive at that. Um, 
is it is it a possible interpretation? Yeah, I'm not writing it off. I don't I don't know if I exactly hold it, um, but if you do hold it, you're looking pretty good right now because the World Economic Forum and the United Nations is definitely pushing a one world nation, even if it's not an obvious one. Um, and you have you have countries all over the world, Brazil and China and Russia. They they all want to start this one world currency. I mean, you have like the Bitcoin stuff and so on and so forth. So. If this is your view, all that to say, you're looking pretty good right now. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know exactly where I fall on it. I'm. I'm. I don't consider myself premillennial dispensational. I'm not opposed to it. I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, but I'm just. I. I've said this a hundred times, but I think that prophecy in the end times is going to be viewed. Uh, and should be viewed like every other prophecy in the Bible, and that's that we don't know until hindsight. So there are all kinds of details, all kinds of things you have to tie together to get any eschatological view, regardless of what it is. Um, there, there, there's always going to be things you have to make work. There are bridges you have to kind of connect without all the pieces. That's the only way it can work because in my view, we're not given all the information. And some of the information we are given, like in Daniel, for example, and even in Revelation, is really complicated. It's really complex. There's a, a lot of things that can go a lot of... Um, a lot of different directions. So am I saying God's the author of confusion? No, but I am saying that he does have the ability and has used the ability to give us only partial information that we can't make a full picture of uh, until we see it in hindsight. So um, anyway, Revelation 13 is where that mainly comes from. There are other supporting passages too, but that's that's the main thing. And anything that sounds weird along those lines, you're probably going to find in Revelation and in, in less or so sometimes in Daniel um, or even Zechariah, but mainly Revelation and then in the, the all of it discourse uh, where Jesus speaks of the end times to his apostles. Okay, next question. Um, I've heard about the age of accountability my whole life. Is the concept biblically grounded and where can I find this in the Bible? Um, so again, this this ties into what we just said a couple questions ago with the whole original sin and original guilt thing. Um, if you hold the view of original guilt, that you're guilty for Adam and Eve's sin, then the whole age accountability thing is just a waste of time to talk about because, I mean, that's the reason that, that Catholics baptize babies, for example. They think they're guilty of the original sin of Adam and Eve, and, and baptism is the start to regeneration or the, the pre-start to, to regeneration. So intellectually, there would be no way around saying that um, infants or newborn babies or even preborn babies would have to be just sent to hell, uh, which is why Augustine thought that they went to um, to purgatory. So with that in mind, um, I think it's implicit that there's some sort of age of accountability, uh, but we're not given any kind of number directly anywhere. Um, I mean, you could go through different concepts of like, well, Jewish people thought, you know, you were an adult at 12 or 16 or whatever it may be. Um, but we're not given an explicit number And what we are given, I think seems to point to it being based more on, um, maybe sort of more on mental capacity than it is on a specific age. Like, let's say somebody has a, um, a disorder where they're 40, but mental, their mental capacity is maybe like they're three or four. Well, are you going to say that because they're 40, they've reached the account, the age of accountability, and so they're just they're going to be condemned if they die? Uh, my answer would be no. And I think that uh, one of the supporting passages for this, again, is in Deuteronomy 1, um, toward the end of the chapter, I want to say it's Deuteronomy 1, 131 or 32, 39 maybe, Deuteronomy 139, 
Uh, and you have this mentioned a couple other places too, but this one's really specific because you have Israel uh, being told you guys are just, I'm by God. He's like, I'm sick of you guys just rebelling against me. You're not going into the promised land. Okay. You're not entering the promised land, but your children will enter the promised land. And then he gives the reason for why the children will enter the promised land. He says, your children will enter the promised land because they do not yet know good from evil. So they don't understand good from evil. They don't understand what it means to sin against God. So we have a toddler and a baby, just about a two-year-old and a, I think, five-month-old now. Um, And so if, if my toddler goes and like slaps the baby on the head, he's doing something wrong, okay? He has to be taught not to do that. That is an effect of sin, by the way, I think. But that doesn't mean that he's guilty of sin. He doesn't understand what it means to sin against God. He doesn't actually understand the repercussions and he doesn't understand good and evil just because he understands, oh, dad told me not to do this. It takes time for people to develop that, to learn that and to understand that. Um, So there definitely is some sort of age or capacity of accountability, but we're not given a number on it. Uh, those are, but those are the things that we can use to point to it. And also that passage should give you comfort that if an infant or a child uh, were to pass away, well, then they would go to be with the Lord because God's not going to judge them and condemn them on a sin that they're not able to commit or understand. Um, he, he, he's, not a, he's not a system. He's not a uh, guides and policies book. Okay. He's, he's a living God who is compassionate. And sometimes we can... We, we want to squeeze him into a framework so bad and have all the answers um, that we just end up doing damage in situations like this. And I have heard Christians tell people, you know, if your child died, they're going to go to hell. That's just how it is. I mean, we don't make the rules, but it's like, what a stupid answer. First of all, because it's not in scripture, but second of all, because it's based on views that were invented by guys who couldn't even read Greek. And again, I love Augustine. Uh, I mean, he has a ton of good work. I, I say this all the time. I feel like I always like sound like I bash him. In this area, I do bash him because I think he's dead wrong. And I think the church had taken um, views of his like that. And they just took him and ran with him for 1,500 years. And now we're dealing with the repercussions of it. So um, all that to say, yes, there is some sort of age or capacity, mental capacity, spiritual capacity of accountability, but we're not given a number for it um, anywhere in the Bible. And again, just to sum that up, God is not a technical legal system. Um, he, he's a living God who is capable of judging perfectly and, and only judges perfectly. So uh, with that in mind, the last question, uh, of course, this one is fun and lighthearted. It says, when God commands Israel to attack other nations, such as the Canaanites, the children were also killed. Was that a moral of God to have children killed as well? I saw TikTok asking a similar question, and I don't have an amazing answer past God is God, and it doesn't matter if we don't like his decision. Um, So, good question, great question. Um, and, And it's one that if you haven't looked into this, and if you don't have an answer prepared for it, think about what you would say right now. Whether it's this particular question about children or nursing babies or women or um, whether it's about, well, God commanded genocide in the Old Testament. He's a a monster. Um, Think right now, if somebody asked you this question, what would you say? How would you respond to this if you were on the spot? This is one that we want to have a response ready for. Um, And really anything revolving around the, the problem of good and evil, 
uh, or I'm sorry, the problem of evil and suffering, not the problem of good. There's no problem with good, I don't think. Not that I'm aware of, but uh, the problem of evil and suffering, and especially anything like this that tries to label God as one who's commanding genocide, which he doesn't do, by the way. Um, and it's, this is a commonly asked question, but you're also going to see it from uh, you know people on TikTok, as mentioned here on Facebook or Instagram, especially and if you're an atheist listening to this and, and you're a cordial person, I'm not talking about you, but we all know like the angry... Uh, the angry atheist community who's just waiting on <laughs> Quora, apparently, uh, or any other kind of website to just wait. For, they just wait for a video to come out so they can attack it and so they can say you're stupid and so on and so forth. And then God's blood, bloodthirsty monster. Um, so you want to have an answer for this. And there are a couple different routes you can go. I'm going to tell you my view that I am actually very convinced of. I've become more and more convinced of it the more I've researched over the years. Um, but before I tell you my view, I would recommend Paul Copan's Is God a Moral Monster? Um, he tackles a lot of these really difficult passages and these really difficult concepts, especially, I think it's maybe only in the Old Testament. I, don't, I haven't read the book in years, but um, he anyway, he tackles these really difficult moral concepts and he does a really good job and a really tedious job at it. I've actually had him on the show too, so I can link that in the description um, from the book he wrote more recently. But Read that, check that out if you haven't. At the very least, it's going to make you think a lot. Now, my view um, is a little bit different than sort of the popular opinion. Um, like you said, you, you you said at the end, if we say God is God and it doesn't matter if we agree or not, well, of course, that's ultimately true. Um, God knows far more than us. Like Isaiah tells us, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't compete with thought, uh, with God on a problem and solution level. Okay, we we can't even begin to fathom it, and I think it is important to understand that up front. But I think this question itself is actually often misstated and misunderstood, and it's based on not knowing anything about, you guessed it, the Divine Council worldview. So when we look at this question, there are a few things that that are true that often aren't mentioned. Number one, there are commands to kill, right, in regard to Canaan. We know that. Um in there are regards to drive out. So yes, there are commands to kill. There are dozens of commands to drive them out of the land or to remove them from the land. I mean, we're talking a couple dozen passages about driving them out or leaving the land. We're not talking about like one here or there. The, the option is either leave or be killed. That much is clear. And that isn't different than any war zone today. It's like, hey, there's going to be a war here, or there is a war here. You either need to get out or you're going to be killed, because we don't know who's who. And that's going to be important in a second here. But the option is leave or be killed. Those are the options. So if if we, we talk about driving out, we talk about Israel having to drive them out of the land, you're going to see why in a second. Be prepared for a sharp turn here. Um, but if we're talking about all these passages about driving them out of the land, what about the ones that do talk about um, killing them? And actually wiping them out, including children, including, including mothers, including everybody. What about the verbs for killing or wiping them out? Which, again, are only a handful. Um, but this is where it gets interesting. As far as I'm aware, and I've done my research on this, okay? As far as I'm aware, every time, not sometimes, not occasionally, this is very important. Every time the verb in regard to killing or wiping out the clans are used... It is always in reference to towns connected to the Anakim. 
Now you're looking at me like I have two heads. You're like, who are the Anakim? The Anakim and the Raphaim, etc., are descendants of the Nephilim. There are a lot of similarities between the Canaanite conquest and the flood. If you remember, right after the uh, right after the um, Genesis six second fall where you have the Nephilim, you have the sons of God coming down, impregnating women, and now you have the Nephilim who are essentially half human, half demon, so to speak. Right after that, what happens? God clears out the land with a flood. The Anakim are associated with the hill country, and these verbs are only used in regards to the inhabitants of the hill country. That's very important. Again, every single time the verb for killing or wiping out is used, it's only used in regard to places where the Anakim are found. Because remember, they're not all in the same place. They've spread out. It's the exact same case with the term for destroy. I don't think that's a coincidence. And as an important note here, um, this does not mean that all Canaanites were descendants of Nephilim. Okay, that's, that's often misunderstood, even by well-known Bible scholars I've had conversations with that you've heard of. Even they've under, that misunderstood this in the view. It doesn't mean that all Canaanites are descendants of Nephilim. Remember, they were supposed to leave the land. They were supposed to be driven out. They were supposed to be pushed out. But it's either you leave or be killed. Those are your options. Why? Because God has sent his people on a conquest to wipe out the Nephilim to wipe out these figures who are half human and half demon. And even if you disagree with the Bible, you throw it all out, you think this is all nonsense, at the end of the day, at the very least, this is what they thought they were doing, even if you don't agree. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. This is what they set out to do. This is a spiritual battle, and God is wiping out the Nephilim. And you'll see these connections between Moses and Joshua, and then between Joshua and Jesus. When Jesus comes out, what does he do? He casts out demons. He's doing the very same thing in a different way. But this is God's goal. This is his territory. This is Yahweh's territory. And what he's doing is he's removing impurity from it. He's removing impurity out of it. And they do wipe out the Nephilim descendants. The very last one being Goliath, who's now wiped out by David, the next Joshua, right? Um, Now, this is incredibly interesting, too, just to kind of wrap this up. Um, but if you look at Joshua 11, this is when they finally cleared out the land. They're moving in. It's about time. Uh, Moses was supposed to do it. The, the Israelites were supposed to do it under him. But of course, they rebelled constantly. They ended up wandering for 40 years and so on. Finally, we're here. And look what it says. This is in Joshua 11, um, verses 21 through 20. We'll read 21 and 22. It says, at that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country from Hebron, Debur, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite history. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. And those any were left for David. Um, so again, you, you see them not just celebrating, yay, we've wiped out all the land. No, they're celebrating that they've wiped out the Anakites. They have wiped out these descendants of the Nephilim. Um, in the land that they are called to take over to make Yahweh's territory and to begin the redemptive history or continue the, the, the redemptive history um, here in the land that he's given them. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, again, we're going to do our next Q&A. We made it. We got all the questions for now. 
Uh, but we're going to do our next Q&A next month at the end of February, the last Friday of the month. So send your questions now to information at apologetics.org. Uh, that's information at apologetics.org. Don't forget, send them in. It'll help somebody else too. And don't forget to hit follow. But otherwise, we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door, and I hope you have a blessed weekend.